Hello, and welcome to the SAMOPS Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today, we are very fortunate to have Admiral Adams, United States Navy, retired with us. So, Dr. Adams, if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, like where you went to medical school, what specialty you were trained in, and what locations you were stationed at, and what your roles were in the Navy. All right, Susan, thank you. It's always a joy to chat about the great experiences one can have serving their country and one of the best professions that I'm aware of, and that's being a physician or a healthcare provider. Indeed, the emphasis is on retired. It's been 15 years, does go fast. Uh, I retired in 2005, where I transitioned to be the dean of the College of the Pacific, which is now Western University of Health Sciences. A little bit about myself. You know, growing up as the eldest of five, parents did not go to college. One graduated from high school. There were significant barriers and issues that I'm sure all of you can point to in your past went to a small liberal arts college in Ohio, and then making the choice because my father had significant medical issues and subsequently the family, you know, struggled. And I had two cousins that were osteopathic physicians. And they kind of put their arms around me, as I hopefully will be doing for you today, to say, hey, you know, this is a great career. Why don't you come follow us? So consequently, I was introduced to osteopathic medicine, applied to the uh, Chicago College then, now Midwestern University, when it was down in Hyde Park near the University of Chicago. And uh, from there, I took the scholarship. It was the very first year of that scholarship that you're on in 1973. And consequently, I had the four-year obligation. And I wasn't fortunate enough to get an internship, which is the reason that I really took the scholarship, primarily for education and certainly secondary for the financial support that it provided. Being married after the first year of medical school uh, to the high school sweetheart certainly helped to take the strain off of that. Because I had the internship uh, as a civilian, trying to figure out how to integrate into the Navy, another classmate of mine who was in the same internship on scholarship talked me into going to undersea medicine. So six more months of training and another two years with the submarine force and a little hyperbaric medicine. The program director, a good southern gentleman in Charleston, South Carolina, came down and put his arm around me and said, hey, hey, my, my friend, uh, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? I said, well, you know, I'm not so sure. He says, well, why don't you come on up the hill and uh, why don't you be a family practice resident? So two more years of family practice and off to Camp Pendleton with the Marines where I was in the troop clinic there, and most of the rest of my career I spent uh, in and out of Marine Corps bases and commands. So family medicine was the start. At that time, I sat down and looked around and said, with my wife, I was looking at what used to be what called a Sears catalog, I guess. For you, uh, uh, that's online shopping, I guess. <laughs> so consequently, I looked at her and I said, and I looked around the house, and I said, you know, we got most of this stuff in this catalog. What do we need any more money for? What, you know, we're happy. Why don't we pretend like we're going to stay in the Navy? And that was huge. When, when I decided to pretend that I was going to stay in the Navy, a big burden was lifted from my emotional context of always looking for what could I be doing? Where could I go? 
and I refocused on my military career. And consequently, I chose to go back to submarines. They were just bringing out the boomers, the big submarines with all of the missiles on it. And I got to spend a year back in the submarine force. And while I was deployed, another classmate of mine sent a message to the submarine saying, you're coming to Washington, D.C. to be an assignment officer, a detailer, as we call them, sending 1,500 doctors and their families around the world, and only respond if you don't want the job. Well, when you're on a submarine deep in the ocean and you're supposed to be quiet and secret, you can't send any messages. So off to Washington we went where we spent seven wonderful years there, uh, decided for my midlife crisis I was going to escape from administration, and so I did an anesthesia residency, which was exciting at George Washington University. It was a great interlude because I thought I didn't want to be an administrator. So after that, a year at Bethesda and then off to Okinawa with the family. The boys were in middle school. Daddy's little girl was just old enough to go to preschool, and she went off base to uh, bilingual preschool. The boys learned Japanese, minored in Japanese after we came back to the States, and both wound up going to the military academy, and one of them actually finished the academy. The other one tried to change it. That didn't work. So that second assignment uh, there in D.C. was at the physician's office uh, at the National Capitol, taking care of the members of Congress, and when it was far more civil um, and wonderful in the Supreme Court justices. So that year interlude was right before I did the anesthesia residency, after the anesthesia, back to Bethesda for a year, and then off to Okinawa. Well, when I got to Okinawa, I was already a 06 um, colonel, a captain, depending on who's listening. And within a year, I found myself in the front office again. So best laid plans of mice and men just doesn't work sometimes. And, and that's the spin that I'd like to put on the rest of this talk about my specialty is really administrative medicine. I believe every physician is a leader, but then there's another level of leadership that requires being the, the servant leader, taking care of others who are taking care of our families and friends both in the military and as a civilian. Let me stop there and see if you can get me back on track, Susan. No, it's very interesting to hear about how people's different Navy careers take them along different paths. So I think it's really interesting that you spent some time on submarines as a physician. Could you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about being an undersea medical officer? Sure. I hit it at a, just a very fortunate time. This would have been in 1978, time frame 79. By then, all of the medical officers from Vietnam, the physicians who had been on submarines, were out of the Navy. We didn't have anyone with submarine occupational medicine experience. So consequently, they reinvigorated the program upon my return to submarines, which was in, oh, 1984, 83, 84. And certainly by then, there were no physicians left that had ever been on a submarine because the corpsmen are taking care of their independent duty corpsmen. They are advanced trained, not quite like a PA, but that's where the concept of physician assistant came from out of Vietnam, of these independent duty corpsmen. And for the most part, they're young, healthy people on submarines. And we're talking 120, 130 people at the most. So consequently, the, the deployment of a physician is not in the cards. But when they commissioned the boomers, the big, big submarines with the missiles on them, the 23, we called it Sherwood Forest, the 23 upright launchers, 
not the torpedoes we're talking about, but the big missiles with multiple MIRV warheads. We had the opportunity to commission those submarines, go through the shipyard, and then take them out on their trials for the first patrol, and then they pulled the docks off again. So we had a small cadre of docks that had that opportunity to be out there. But in the meantime, you're also, as a submarine medical officer, you're learning about hyperbaric medicine. You get to dive. Back then, I dove in the Mark V. That was that old copper hat. And then they came out with the 12, which is you know far more suitable, more comfortable, and going down to depths of 200 feet where you breathe helium. And you learned all of the respiratory physiology and the trials and tribulations of your scuba, consequently, the Navy SEALs and the Explosive Ordnance Divisions. And so that undersea medicine provides support for all of those unique specialties. And it truly is your, again, your second career or third career. You know, first you're a naval uh, officer and a gentle person. Second, you're a physician. And third, you have usually an occupational specialty, whether that's flight surgery, undersea medicine, or just uh, pumping with the Marines. So really, submarines is a small community. The undersea medicine is a small community. I don't know if they take still 10 or 15 a year. So trying to get your foot through the door early in your training, when you do your rotations, and trying to identify early is probably really important if you're interested in undersea medicine. Definitely. That sounds super interesting. Is doing UMO years or being a flight surgeon or being a GMO, is that something that you would suggest for medical students to do after internship? Boy, I'll tell you, I I really, my heart goes out to all medical students being forced by the end of the second year to really be focused on what's my specialty because many mistakes are made. And unfortunately, a lot of those mistakes are based on I want to be rich or uh, how am I going to pay my loans back or now it's uh, certainly, hopefully, as a, uh, you may still have undergraduate loans, but the burden of loans should not be too terrible as a military scholar. But the idea of having that break year, sometimes it's two years, to refocus and really look at what you thought you wanted. Once you've been out there spreading your wings, meeting other people, you frequently change your mind. And we do believe, at least at that time, again, you know, I'm ancient history, uh, certainly wearing the gold submarine medical officer or the flight surgery wings or now humping with the Marines with their insignia, all of those certainly prepare you to be a little more ideal for your subsequent residency. Definitely. That's good advice. In reference to you doing the second residency of anesthesiology, how did that work with the Navy? Were you still in the Navy while you were doing that residency, or were they paying for it, or how did that work? Yeah, I was really very fortunate. I came out of the Capitol, and having been a detailer before, and at that time, as all specialties swing, the word was out that there was an overabundance of anesthesia graduates So consequently, many individuals were not taking anesthesia residencies at the time. And the Navy was suffering because of that. So the call went out for trying to get more anesthesiologists. And I was in a position there. I I kind of had poked around with the idea. This was a kind of a fortuitous time. I always refer to the kanji symbol for luck, where opportunity meets preparedness. I was prepared in that I had 
reasonable credentials with a family practice residency behind me because as most specialties, everyone wanted to be an anesthesiologist in the 70s and then they perceived flooding of the market of anesthesia and the question of being able to get a job. So people weren't applying for anesthesia anymore and that affected the Navy. So I had some interest. I went over to GW, George Washington University. They happened to have a need. The Navy had a need and it worked out. But I would advise you that the likelihood of that happening today uh, with the constraints that we face in funding of residencies, because I was on full active duty, made 06 during that time. It was just an extremely fortunate time for me. And the family got to stay an additional three years in Virginia. So the middle school boys and daddy's little girl, they were all able to kind of solidify a home base, which uh, they uh, to this day refer to Northern Virginia as their home where they came from. Gotcha. Okay, that's good to know about. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like to be a flag officer and what your main duties were and how any interactions that you had changed and what your patient load was like at that time? Before I became a flag officer, back when I was a detailer, the Navy and most of the services by mandate of Congress tried to create clinician flag officers. That lasted about three or four years, and it was a disaster. The biggest one is they've cut back the last 40 years on the number of physician, medical corps, and other supporting corps flag officers because the total number of flag officers in the military are hooked to a proportion of the active duty force, and then they even cut back on that. So the clinician flag officer was a momentary passage. It is just too difficult if you choose to be an administrative leader. And that's where early on in the talk, I think I I spoke to the fact that my specialty really is leadership at the senior administrative level. Um, In the civilian counterpart, many chief executive officers of healthcare systems, of hospitals, are physicians. They've grown up with uh, an MPA, an MBA, an MPH with an emphasis in leadership and consequently become chief medical officers, and before you know it, their clinical time is taken away. And we wind up taking pride in assuring that those physicians and other health care providers are able to provide wonderful health care access at a reasonable cost for all of the patients that are entrusted to us, and kind of like a residency director. A residency director gives up almost 60% of their time of patient care to make sure that the residents are taking care of patients. And the subliminal message is, because I did that, look how many more patients I'm taking care of throughout my lifetime because all of those folks represent a piece of me. So that's the comeuppance that you (laughs) kind of justify in your own mind as to why you're not taking care of patients. I tried for a while to do anesthesia, Uh, at least on an outpatient basis, doing a little uh, propofol for uh, colonoscopies. And again, the distractions and the risk of when you're the leader of having something bad happen to some fault of your own or no fault of your own just outweighs the benefit. So you asked me about being a clinician in practice. What really changes is your opportunity to affect change. There are three types of leaders in my mind. There are the starters, the leader that goes out there and, in our case, can, from scratch, starts a whole new medical school, which grows to a university. 
There's the other leader that comes in and just kind of keeps things on track. And then there's the leader who's a change agent who takes something good and makes it better or takes something that's not so good and makes it good and uh, fulfills the mission of the institution. And again, that's what I learned. And I, there was risk-taking there. I, uh, When I went to Portsmouth, I changed the organizational structure. Quite honestly, many of the physicians and leadership uh, were forced into department heads, and they were just overwhelmed with the administrative burdens we were getting behind on patient care. You know, so I worked with them, and in this case, we put a number of nurses in leadership roles, uh, senior nurses who were, you know, uh, master's degrees, some with a doctorate. And we formed pods and teams, and we challenged the status quo. Quite honestly, some of the senior physicians in admirals above me said, why would you let a nurse be in charge? And I said, because they're fully capable, and they're doing a great job. But again, here's where the parochialism that you're going to sense, this idea that it can only be a physician. Uh, I challenge you on thinking about that as you enter the Navy and understand that it really is a team that gets the job done. For those of you that have ever heard of Marcus Welby, I refer to him as DO, not MD, where he was a private practice doc on TV sitcom. You know, he did it all by himself. I think his office manager, uh, which I can't remember, maybe it was even his wife, did a lot of the background work, but he got all the credit. That's not the way we practice medicine today. When you were talking about Portsmouth, was that when you were the CEO of yes. Welby? Okay. Could you talk a little bit about just like what your main duties were when you were in the role? Because I believe that you were a CEO of several naval hospitals. Is that right? Yes. When I got to Okinawa, I was immediately the chair of the department and then wound up being the executive officer, the XO, there and went from there to Buford, South Carolina, where I was the CEO, the commanding officer uh, for uh, that covered the Marine Corps Air Station and Paris Island, the recruit center. And subsequently, uh, they asked me to come to Washington, and I was still fighting administration and not thinking I wanted to do that. So I was able to sweet-talk them into going to Italy to be the commanding officer overseas, a small command. And then within a year, I was selected for flag admiral and brought back to Portsmouth. At that time, the admiral, we were just developing TRICARE, we had regions, so I was kind of the regional director in addition to being the hospital commander. Those things have changed. They now have an 06, again, a, a captain who pretty much runs the hospital, and the admirals, because there's fewer, are kind of the regional people. And as we look at the, those of you that attended the AMOPS conference, heard about how that's even being consolidated where regions are shared by the various services, flag officers and the generals. So that is all an evolution right now. So it's far different than when I was in command. I see. Was it hard to make the transition from being an 06 to an 07? Well, fortunately for me, I came from two commands to another command. The vastness of that was certainly shocking. The pace and the level of tension and detail and trying to maintain the type of embraceive leadership that I enjoyed was far more difficult. Again, talking to audiences of, you know, three, four, five hundred rather than three, four, and five or 30 or 50 was pretty, pretty dramatic. Getting that message out, the, the ability to communicate, uh, the ability to continue building teams at that higher level. And then 
the biggest jump was certainly the interaction and the responsibility I had to other three- and four-star admirals and generals eventually uh, moving over to NATO and and the Atlantic uh, Surface Force. Those interactions required the time that I had spent on submarines to come back to me, the occupational specialty. And that's, you know, back to a previous question, the idea of spending a couple of years either humping with the Marines or flight surgery or undersea medicine gives you that perspective in the future. It certainly gives you that perspective every day in your primary specialty when you're dealing with the families and understanding where they're coming from because you've kind of been there and done that. And I guess one of the tougher lessons I learned, which I try not to forget now, was I was so focused on taking care of and embracing the individuals that work within the command, which I would never change this attitude, but I was so focused on taking care of them that I frequently didn't spend enough time managing the folks that I worked for. And that that's a, a strong lesson. And it isn't, you know, that, because I always perceive that as kind of brown-nosing or something of that nature. And But that's not the case. It really is a case of they need to understand and know what you're doing and how it impacts their planning and what they're doing. And that's a huge lesson for all of you to communicate up at least 25% of the time, but never forget those people that are supporting you and executing the responsibilities that you quite honestly are responsible for. Mm-hmm. Right. That is a good lesson. It seems like you have a great family life. And I know that being in the military for as long as you were, you have to have a family that supports you. Could you talk about how you balanced your career in the military and as a physician with maintaining that good family life? Sure. You know, we, we were very fortunate even though I frequently say when folks ask me, where were you? I like to say that we were uh, in Okinawa, Japan for four years, Naples, and I pause, Italy, not Florida, for a little more than a year. And and then I affectionately say, and then another third world country, uh, Buford, South Carolina, which I still have a home there. We love it. The idea is that most people worry about their children And our children prospered in that they learned how to integrate into the community. They used sports to make friends. They accepted it. When I was looking to take the next leap from Okinawa to be a commanding officer, I looked at my middle school boys and said, look, you know, this is a big jump. Life is going to change. And the two of them looked up at me and said, go for it, Dad. So just that, I think, that internal communication, their engagement in the process, and then my wife loved it more than I did. I mean, if there's anything that upsets her more is the fact that we had that conversation about it's time to retire. And she says, no, it's not. I said, yes, it is. Uh, This is a young person's sport. We've got to make room. And, you know, quite honestly, they've given me all the opportunities that they can. So it's that constant dialogue, the attitude, that I spoke of sitting on that couch in Oceanside, California, looking at my wife when I think we had our oldest was, you know, just a baby. And I said, you know, we got everything in the catalog. What, what, what's the deal? What do we need any more money for? And just coming to that realization and, you know, after I got out of the Navy, I realized we had a lot of money. <laughs> Someone, you know, you need to do the, you need to do the math. 
to see what you pay for as a civilian versus the benefits that you derive as being on active duty. So I think that working together and having a spouse, that's always flexible. And when I was a detailer, quite honestly, I would be convincing folks to go to far places or even even not so far. I mean, convincing someone to go to San Diego. And I would be twisting their arm, giving them all the reasons. And then suddenly they would say, yes, but my significant other. And that kind of stopped my conversation. That's where I stopped because it's a team. And working together that way is really important. Now, those that didn't have any choice and several were very angry with me because they went anyway, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later, I frequently got a note or bumped into them and said, and they humbly said, thank you, that was the best thing you ever did for me. I needed to get out of my niche. And that this was just the best thing, that best rotation, the best place that we've ever been. I wish we could go back. So, again, it's that flexibility, being able to get out of your base and try something new. And if your significant other isn't going to cooperate, you're going to be miserable. Right. Yeah, I remember when I went to ODF, we were able to see a retirement ceremony, which was very special, and they gave an award to the spouse, which I thought was really important because, I mean, we chose to be in the military, but our spouse didn't necessarily choose that, and so I can understand how it would be very hard for them to move everywhere. Well, I think the story there, besides the the number of times that that Paula received recognition, uh, you know, one time it was actually a, a medal, for community service, but uh, the, the coup de grace was upon my retirement as a one-star admiral. The four-star and his wife called Paula up and awarded her two stars just in case I was confused. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> All right, so as everyone that's listening to this knows, this is the SAMOPS podcast, so the Student Association of Military Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons. And Dr. Adams actually was a past president of AMOPS, which is really cool that he's helping us with this podcast. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your involvement in AMOPS throughout the years and kind of just the importance of being involved with organizations like this for our career. Oh, Susan, thank you. I almost forgot about uh, some of my notes that I made before uh, we started this. I just can't tell you how important you develop multiple lines of interest. I was sitting in Los Angeles, and then Captain Esky, who was the CEO of Long Beach Naval Hospital, which no longer exists, in the first, second, third year of, of AMOPS, and they were selecting officers, and he being a senior officer at this meeting, they were looking for a secretary treasurer, and nobody was volunteering. He looked around the room, put his arm around me, and said, this young lieutenant would be happy to do that job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the story there is Captain Esky became the first DO admiral in the Navy. And these are the mentors, the connections that you can't pay for and you can't plan for. So being present is really important. The folks listening to this podcast are probably of the millennial generation, and you're being accused of not being joiners. I understand. I even, after a while, when I got out of the Navy, I had to cut back on on some of the organizations I belonged to. The dues were such. But for you not to be members of your professional society, 
for you not to have at least one membership in the osteopathic uh, society, whether it's your state, whether it's the national or the specialty society. It's unconscionable. You have been given a great gift, and you have to pass it on. And the way we maintain recognition, the way we maintain education for our elected leaders, and if there's ever a time that an elected leader needed an education, it's now. And and our associations are doing that. They can't do it without you. So as you think about, I happen to fall into the American College of Healthcare Executives because when I was in Okinawa, they offered, I got a master's degree and the folks on the island were all, had a chapter, but there's the American College of Physician Leaders, which used to be the American College of Physician Executives. That's primarily a physician's group. ACHE tends to be more an administrator's group. But I just can't emphasize enough that coming up through the ranks, on my fitness report, secretary treasurer of a national organization, you know, vice president of a national organization, president of a national organization, it doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is, it just shows that you have some additional talents and experience in leadership that you can bring to the table. Whether or not you ever want to be an 06 or an 07 or an 08 or a surgeon general, You know, we've had our surgeon generals as osteopathic physicians, and they were all, all members of professional societies, and they maintain their osteopathic understanding and allegiance. So it's kind of like that silly old limerick, you know, uh, dance with the girl that brought you to the dance, dance with the guy that asked you to the dance, you know. So thank you for asking that last question, because of all of the messages I can send, if we're going to survive as a profession, and we're going to maintain the professionalism attribute where we monitor and do self-evaluation and not give it over to third parties to come in and evaluate you, the physician, as a physician, and not have your physician brothers and sisters do those evaluations for our continued credibility and accreditation processes. We'll lose all of that. And then that's kind of the end of the profession and professionalism as we know it. Self-regulating, self-monitoring is so important. Definitely. Yeah, that is definitely good advice to hear about and for people to listen to. Do you have any advice for us to be strong officers in the military and particularly things that we can do while we're in medical school to try and develop leadership skills or become more connected to the military for when we get out of medical school? Again, you're getting mentoring by attending SAMOPS and the AMOPS annual meeting. Your most important responsibility is doing well in your coursework number one. Number two, valuing the information that's trying to be shared about your transition from a college graduate to a medical student to a professional. And so many of the rules and regulations that many of the students complain about or huff about, it's an attitude issue. And I wish I had been a little more humble and not so huffy myself. I can remember a couple of times where I opened my mouth and stuck my foot right there. It just is not the game plan. The game plan is to learn and to practice your humility, take leadership opportunities, volunteer as time allows, remembering your primary duty is to do well in your studies 
so that you're well prepared and take that seriously. Other than staying on track, taking these opportunities to listen to podcasts and attending an AMOPS meeting and getting your opportunity for your temporary active duty where you can sense the community and the culture and just be open and understanding. And remember, the toughest lesson you're going to learn is that unequivocally, you are an officer and a gentle person first and a physician second. And that will not be a conflict in your life when you truly understand what that means. It will not be a conflict. Definitely. This last question is kind of general and a little similar to the last one, but a little different. Is there anything that you've learned throughout your career or just any general advice that you'd like to give us that are really just at the beginnings of our military and medical careers that either you learned along the way or that you wish that you had known sooner? Yeah, kind of touched on a little bit of the humility, understanding that you really don't know as much as you think you know, and stepping back. If you're an extrovert, that means in order to think, you talk. If you're an introvert, you think about it and think about it and don't necessarily talk. You know, a kind of a blend of those. Don't think out loud, process it, but then speak. The humility that comes along with that is really important as you begin your careers. You will then be given opportunities as you move along and you gain a few years under your belt. You're looked to as a competent and highly respected in your chosen specialty. And again, wearing one of the gold-plated occupational medicine insignias, such as flight surgery or undersea medicine or the marine symbol, you will then form a whole new world. It's, it's like being a freshman again. You know, how many times have you been a freshman? And when you graduate, you're going to be an intern freshman. And, you know, what can they make me? You can't make me any, you know, we used to say what... You know, what can be worse? They'll make me an intern? I'm already an intern, you know, or first-year rotating transitional year. And then you become a senior, and you are telling the interns what to do, but then you're a first-year attending. And now you're at the bottom of the heap again. So enjoy being at the bottom. And uh, when I made one star, I went for coffee for two and three stars. You know, nothing changes. It's just a different elevation and different atmosphere that you need to adapt to. Right. Well, that was great. Thank you so much for all of your words of wisdom, Dr. Adams. That wraps up our episode with Dr. Adams today. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.